Yeah. Judah, now you know why you're up here, huh? This morning is August 24, 2008. The message is flared nostrils. Stand up, Judah. There's this genetic trait that the men in my family have, and uh, we won't tell anybody. It's not like we're on the World Wide Web or anything, but the women in my family have it too. Can you show them what flared nostrils look like? You do it at the house all of the time. Come on. Come on, be bold. The, the righteous are as bold as lions. Come on, turn around, Lion of Judah. Show them what a flared nostril is. Come on. You want some allowance? All right, go sit down. Flared nostrils are a pretty easy thing to recognize, aren't they? Yeah, when, when uh, my son flares his nostrils, it looks as if a train is coming down the track with headlights on. And I can see uh, the actual words that I'm speaking imprinted on his brain at, at that moment. I say this because Hebrew is a visual language. And I'm going to teach you more about that, but I wanted to tell you something else that came to me before we get into that part of the message. While we were worshiping today, I remembered something. I remembered that we did not start in a room with this many people. We didn't even start in my living room, which is where most of you came into our church. Uh, we didn't start with the knowledge of the Word that we have or Matt's musical abilities. Somewhere in 1993, a man challenged me greatly about my way of life and my lifestyle. He said things like, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I could say, Lord, Lord, and I could quote Bible verses, and because I had a decent memory, I could win awards doing it. But I could not honestly say that I was doing God's will. And to me, that meant that Matthew 7.21 said I was not entering the kingdom. Now, there was a pastor in a church full of thousands, would assure me that I was because they baptized me and I could quote Romans 9, 10, and 10. Then in my heart, I knew the truth. So I went home and shook my fist in the air at God, angry. I don't know what I thought He had done wrong, but for the first time in my life, something happened. The God of the universe spoke to me. The reason that we're here in a church called Life Changing Ministries is because He spoke to me in an audible way that knocked me down. A lot of people thought I was crazy when I told them that, including the pastor of the church I was going to. told me God didn't do that anymore. The problem is, He did do it to me. I didn't say that it was the only way anybody could experience Him. I didn't say that this pastor had to experience Him that way. I simply told Him what happened to me. And when He gave me the revelation that He gave me, my prayer was, Lord, change me. And for over 15 years now, He has been changing me. Matthew Piro was the middle linebacker on our football team, and I was the tailback. I know that's hard to imagine. You could time our 40s on calendars, but it was hard to tackle us. He had gotten born again just a little bit before I had, and I called him foul names, some of them racial, some of them not. But the moment Jesus took hold of my life, I fell in love with humanity. Matthew baptized me in an apartment swimming pool on a Saturday in front of the whole world because what had happened to us, we could not keep a secret. And not long after that, he came into possession of a cheap Yamaha guitar. Our very first worship sessions did not sound like this and did not have thousands of dollars worth of equipment. He was staring at a guitar chart, playing a few strums, and then you'd hear... And he would start the next strum. 
and the king of the universe did not seem to mind. I tell you all of that to tell you don't despise the day of small beginnings. I would not trade a worship service with tens of thousands of people for those first few hours in my 600 square foot studio apartment because the king was not too proud to show up in our presence. So today I'll teach you all kind of things about Hebraic roots. I will read to you from various books in the Bible and do my very best to impact you on some level about the truth of the gospel. But the reality is, if you want to be impacted by the gospel, it's not a hard thing to do. Even a violent, abusive, mean 18-year-old kid who has shaken his hands in the air at God can contact Him if you're just serious. And once you've met Him in the way that I've met Him, your life will never be the same again. Now, I've been told many times to tone my testimony down. All I can tell you about that is, believe it or not, it is my testimony. And the last 15 years have either been consistent insanity or it really did happen. And most of you that are sitting here are the result of that. Christians are supposed to be catalysts for change. When one man's life changes, it should so profoundly change that all the people around you take note. If you got born again and your own mother and father did not see something different, you really should go back and re-examine that. If you've been saved as long as you can remember, but there was never a definite time period in your life that you can point to and say, at that point I, I became serious. My life changed. You need to go back and re-examine. There are a lot of things that I could tell you. We could give you donuts, hand out gift certificates, and promise to build a gymnasium in the back. And I'm sure we would build a bigger church. But all I can say is that when the king appeared to me, spoke to me, knocked me down, he didn't seem interested in those things. He seemed interested in a changed life and people who were serious about the kingdom. Having said that, I've had fun every step of the way. And those of you that know me know I am the biggest clown on earth. And he knew it when he called me. Being in love with the King of Kings does not require your personality to change. It does not require you to become a cookie-cutter, nerdy Christian with a briefcase. All it requires is that what God has instilled in you, you suddenly use to glorify Him. I was not brought into Christianity as a, a dainty kind of person. I had a hard time relating to, Brother, I love you. That was hard for me. Because that's not how I lived. That's not... I didn't understand it. I did not suddenly become that way because I became a Christian. God took my personality and He refined it to glorify Him. And we found out something. Beth's got a different personality from Wes. Wes has got a different personality from Dre. Dre's got a different personality from Lynette. And God is glorified in them all. They all just have to be refined in His presence. So I say all of that to say as we get into our message about flared nostrils, you embrace God in the only ways that you know how, but you always be open to change. If you are not changing your mind about anything, if you believe exactly to the minute detail today what you did 10 years ago, you need to ask yourself, have you grown any? The very progressive nature of God's revelation means that you are learning more tomorrow than you knew today. Your mind ought to change sometimes. You ought to grow. If when you were eight you mastered everything that there is to know about God and now you're 80, something's wrong with your life. God doesn't do that. 
denominations do that because it's an easy business-like way to run a church. We'll all agree on these points and not discuss anything else. The Word of God is not that way. Every time I open it, it's like a mirror challenging my life, showing me where I need to change, where I need to grow, and what I'm doing well. I encourage you to take such a view. It will serve you well. So turn to Psalms. We're actually in a single psalm, Psalm 103, to start with. Flared nostrils. (laughs) What is important to know about this is that there have been many methods of communication through the years. I heard the other day that children who were born in 1990 are now going to college. Can you imagine? Born in 1990, now going to college. Never lived in a world without a cell phone. Never lived in a world where your cell phone didn't have caller ID. Do you remember when caller ID came out? I loved it. It We knew when to answer the phone. (laughs) They're more likely to idolize somebody like Harry Potter and Tiger Woods than to know who Winston Churchill or Andrew Jackson were. And this has always been this way. One generation looks upon the, the next as sometimes shallow. And yet we all become what God has called us to be. I say all of this to say that in our ages of telephone, internet, email, faxes, FMX, MMS, text messages, radio, TV, iChat, Skype, video conferencing, this is not how it began. We live in a very connected world. Some of you, I know that I was on a ship one time with Fred Hull and he was teaching me how he had to learn Morse code. Before that, telegrams existed. Before that, smoke signals. Before that, I mean, in in Masada, uh, in AD 70, they used carrier pigeons. Some kind of way people have been trying to communicate. And the point of communication is to get a thought that is in here to you in the same way that I had it in here. When the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, I think what we're looking at in the flesh are the very thoughts of God revealed. Everything that was contained in His mind, the fullness of who He is, was being expressed in a way that you could see it. I think that's why it's called the Logos in Greek, the Word. At least one of the reasons. Hebrew, which most people believe was the original language, uses a very intelligent, visual way to communicate. Have you ever taught children to read or did you remember going through something like a Rosetta Stone type scenario where they, they hold up bottle. This is a bottle. Say bottle, you know? And they show you a picture of something trying to get it through the eye gate and also the ear gate hoping that you would retain something. Isn't it interesting that the language that God first gave us His Word in and the culture that He revealed Himself through The language that Jesus read and prayed in was Hebrew, and it's very visually based. This is interesting and a departure from what we're used to because we're raised under a Greek school of thought. And I wanted to share with you some differences so it will help you embrace God and embrace the Scripture in a more holistic and full sense than we may have thought of before. Greek views the world through the mind. Very abstract kind of thoughts. You can see this in Psalm 103. Look at the 8th verse. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in love. The Lord is compassionate, gracious, uh, slow in anger, abounding in love. All of those concepts, whether we're talking about anger, gracious, compassionate, those are things that cannot be tasted. They cannot be smelled. They can't be touched. Those are all things that you must grasp in your mind and conceive in your mind. There, in most cases, are not words for these things in Hebrew. You know how a Hebrew would say angry? It's off, A-P-H. It's pronounced like off, O-F-F, though. A-P-H is off. It means to flare your nostrils. When a Hebrew wants to say that God is slow to get angry, in the original language, what it says is he's slow to flare his nostrils. If you translated this into English, you'd be slow to flare his nostrils. Great. God's got a very narrow nose. It wouldn't mean anything to you. But to a society that is based more on the function of something, less on the descriptor, more on the function of something, what they noticed is tent-dwelling people in the desert. When somebody got angry, the first thing that happened was their nostrils flared and their fists clenched. Come on, some of you young men, do you remember what it was like to be 17, to be squared off with somebody else? You're in an argument, and you knew when the hands came out of the pocket and the fists clenched, something was happening, right? You, you, you didn't uh, just cross your arms and file your nails. Something was about to happen. Well, Hebrews saw that anger was often preceded by a flaring of the nostrils. Incidentally, there's a sign back there that says, Jesus set out when... It says, uh, as the time drew near for His return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's no word for resolute in the Bible. It's the translation of a phrase that says, as the time drew near for Jesus to return to heaven, He set His face as flint towards Jerusalem. Do you hear how descriptive from a pictorial and functional standpoint this is? It's different to say somebody was resolute than to picture somebody with an actual face chiseled like granite, unmovable by the things that were coming. But Hebrews were graphic in their descriptions. Hebrew views the world through senses, things that can be touched, smelled, tasted, heard. I promise this will have a point. Jesus' teaching is always something that can be touched, smelled, tasted, or heard. Look at the very first psalm. By the way, when I read to you Psalm 103 and told you it's an example of Greek thought, what I mean is the way that we have translated it shows that we don't understand the language that it was written in. The translation's not wrong. They're trying to express that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in compassion, all of those things. But that's not how a Hebrew would say it. There's a reason that God gave these things in the language that He did. And it's because it paints an overwhelming picture, and I'm just going to cheat a little bit and tell you, paints an overwhelming picture for you that is different than today. Today, Christianity is passive. I speak, your job is to sit and listen. It was never this way. Never this way. Today, we are Christians because we believe in Jesus. It was never this way. In the early days, the person who stood here his job was to make sure that the words that you brought were read correctly, spoken correctly. 
The congregation brought the sermon. The ruler of the synagogue simply made sure that it was correct. In the early days, you were not a member of a church, a congregation or assembly of believers, because you believed something. You were a member of it because you lived a certain way. They called themselves followers of the way. Do you understand the differences in the schools of thought here? One is completely passive, entirely intellectual. The other completely experiential and action-oriented. Is it possible to sit still and not know what somebody believes? Of course. Is it possible for somebody to sit still and profess a belief they don't have? Yes, that's how I got saved. That's, how, that's exactly how I got saved. I played the part. I looked just like everybody else, and I could say the right things, but there was no fruit in my life. This would never happen in a congregation of entirely Hebrew believers in the first century because they would not consider you a believer unless they saw actions that demonstrated what you said you believed. And they would call you a follower of the way. This is remarkably different from what has been mass-marketed to America as Christianity. I found out something. In many churches, not all, the reason that they don't care is because it's become like a machine. It's become an assembly line. And after all, we see a great harvest, yes, but there are hundreds of thousands of people that are left crippled along the sides of the field. As long as you don't do anything wrong and you give your offering, that's all anybody seems to want. Christianity is not about not doing anything wrong. It's about doing something that is right. Look at the difference in the way that this Hebrew psalm is translated. It would be the very first psalm. Be one that's familiar to you. That's why I chose it. It's the third verse. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Think about this. When this Hebrew phrase is trying to describe what a righteous man is like, we don't have abstract thoughts that say, well, he's loving. Well, he's compassionate. None of those things. It says he's like a tree. You can touch a tree. You can see a tree. You can smell a tree. It says he's like streams of water. You can get in a stream of water. You can touch it. You can drink it. You can feel it all through the senses. It's like fruit. He's like the leaves on the tree. Hebrews are always looking for something that makes an impact, not something that can simply be imagined. There's another unique difference. I was in Israel and a man asked me to describe a pencil. He holds up a pencil. He says, what is in my hand? I said, well, it's a piece of wood. It's about six inches long. It's got yellow on it. The end has rubber on it. He kind of laughed. He turned to the Jewish children that were there and said, what's in my hand? They said, something to write with. Were we both right? Yes, but we come from different backgrounds. So the way we think and describe and interact and communicate with the world is different. To the Jew, a pencil is first something to write with and second, a yellow piece of wood with all of those things. To us, everything is the way that it appears rather than the way that it functions. Are we starting to get what I'm describing now? You can appear to... How many times do you walk down the street and you see a perfectly manicured yard? You see what looks like the leave-it-to-beaver house, right? Ward and June and all the three little kids out 
and a sprinkler and a white picket fence only to find out he's an alcoholic, she's an adulteress, and the kids are all on dope and hate each other. It happens every day. But from the outside, all we want to do is project the image. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all cool. We actually write down the things that we agree on about God. Points 1 through 14. We can all agree on it. So I'm okay and you're okay. Never mind the fact that your life is spiritually diseased. We can all agree on these things about God. Implement them? Well, that's not even a question. Just look the part. Show up. Give us your money. You think maybe this is the reason so many people are hurt in church? Maybe they walked in hurt expecting to get healed. What if you went to a hospital and all they cared about was that you looked a lot like a patient? Good job, Matthew. You got the gown on. Got it tied in the back. Good deal, buddy. Just leave your insurance card and come back next week. But they did nothing about your life. Now, can we blame the churches only? Let's think about this. We have a real problem, don't we? None of us ever want to be seen as weak. We don't want anybody to see our flaws. When's the last time somebody walked by you and said, Hey, Bob, how you doing? And Bob said, Actually, today's been pretty rough. I'm struggling in my senses. My children aren't obeying me. And When's the last time that even happened? And if it did happen to you, you ran from that person the next time you saw him. Or you didn't ask. There was a guy I knew a long time ago. He got much better with it later, but I quit asking him how he was doing. Because the truth is, it was a polite gesture and I didn't care. Now, I had to do something about my life because that wasn't right. But when we ask people, hey, how are you doing? What do they always say? Good, fine. How about you? Good, fine. Liars? You're a liar. Can't get a needle out of your arm, but you're doing fine. When I first started this church, a man came to me who was breaking up crack rock, putting it in lemon juice and injecting it into his body. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Obviously. I think your arm's going to fall off, dude. Something's wrong with it. You know? I'm fine. Really? Maybe somewhere along the line we could learn from the very culture that God gave us and embrace the Word in a little different way. Maybe we could read it and say, not what should I believe, Lord, but what should I do differently today than I did yesterday? See, I believed all of the right things in 1993 before I was born again. But I did not believe them to the point that they produced a different action in my life. But the moment He spoke to me, and it didn't sound like Charlton Heston, friends. It was not in King James English. He spoke to me in a primal sense that knocked me down and there was no question who was speaking to me. There was no, who are you, Lord? I was forced to the floor by His voice. And He said, you are fighting for the wrong side. Not very profound, huh? But it was to me. Trembling, I said, Lord, change me. And He did. It was not changing a belief structure. I believed Jesus was Lord before that. I believed He was raised from the dead before that. And I could quote more Scripture at 17 than most of you in this room can today. And I was lost. But you know what I could do? I'm okay. You're okay. Hey, are you a believer? Yes, I believe in my heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. I confessed it with my mouth. And that was satisfied everybody to the point where the church leadership was upset when I said, no, I didn't rededicate. I just got born again. I need to be baptized. 
Mm, you were already baptized and it was the right way and here's the form in which it has to be done. This is the way you got to say it, the way you got to do it and the water must close completely over your head. Thank you. The ritual helped me so much the first time. Thank you. Now, I believe in baptizing in a certain way, but you know what? We do it in swimming pools. We do it in horse troughs. I'll do it in a ditch. I'll do it anywhere that is public. And we don't go hide in some church building. We do it out in the front of the whole world for everybody to see. And if you won't invite your closest friends, you're not really doing what you should be doing. Jesus did not die in some small corner somewhere. Alf, off, nose flaring. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. I've got to get back on message, huh? By the way, Matt and I have been flirting with the idea of putting a sign up over the door. I say this purely in jest. That's pretty bad when I have to warn you a joke is coming before I tell you, huh? But in every small joke, there is a little bit of truth, right? The sign is intended to read Caucasians. Pray for emotion before entering. Church, we do not have to be so stiff and so white. You don't have to do it. You can respond. It's okay every once in a while. If you even experience movement during worship, it won't hurt you. I promise. God created us to interact with Him. He really did. And I tell you, I grew up in an environment where if you did go to church, you stood stoically. The women sang, the men looked mean. First thing that happens when you're really born again is you're looking for any way possible to tell him how much you love him. I went from fighting with people in parking lots to staring at the trees going, my God, they're worshiping you, Lord. They're worshiping you. I hugged my friends so much, told them I loved them so much, every once in a while somebody got the wrong idea. You know? I said, no, he's my brother. You all related? No, he's, he's my brother. What do you mean, dude? I heard you tell him you love him. I said, I do. Love you too. Second yeah. Samuel twenty two, you there? I'm not there. I actually turned the wrong way. There we go. Second Samuel twenty two. Just want to show you an example of Hebrew thought flaring nostrils, then we're going to move on to larger points. This second Samuel twenty two, starting in the seventh verse. In my distress, I called to Yahweh. I called out to my name. From His temple, He heard my voice. My cry came to His ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because He was angry. Now that word for angry is alf. Nostrils flared. Smoke rose from His nostrils. Consuming fire came from His mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Do you hear how descriptive the Hebrews are? When they want to show you that God is angry, they're describing not only His nostrils flaring, but fire coming out of it and smoke rising to the heavens. You know when we do something like that? In our cartoons, when we want to show a kid that a bull is angry or something, he'll stomp his feet and smoke comes out of his ears, right? The Hebrews were like this in all of their description because to them, a relationship with God was something to be touched, tasted, seen, felt, experienced not simply intellectually grasp. Turn with me then to uh, Psalm 22. If you get tired of turning, that's okay. You'll eventually get used to it. But if you get tired today, I rarely lie when I preach. So you're safe this morning. 
I won't misquote it. I won't read you something that's not there. And we don't have one of those translations that uh, came from a weird 16-year-old little boy that wanted to create a new religion or something. We're reading from the actual Bible. So you're, you're safe with me. Uh, in Psalm 22, I wanted to introduce you to something. Have you ever heard people debate this? I want you to know I have no vested interest. I don't own a deodorant company. I have stock in Speedstick. I have no vested interest in whether or not you raise your hands in worship. It's something that happened to me when I got born again. I was in a church where nobody did. I did, and the whole road turned around to stare at me. And I thought, you know, I, I didn't even know why it could be considered wrong. If you've ever been in this debate with this idea that Hebrew is a visual language, if you want to write the word praise, the reason I asked Matthew to do that song first, the great Hillel, when you're writing the word praise in Hebrew, the very first letter of Hillel is a stick figure with his hands raised. That ought to end the debate. When a Jew wanted to show you that they were going to praise God, they saw something as active participation not casual observation. They wanted to express their love for God not only in song, not only in clapping. The word rejoice means to leap and spin before the Lord. How many churches would be comfortable with that if we put many trampolines in here? Probably not. It doesn't fit into our culture very well. Well, let's make sure that we beat that Word of God till it conforms to our culture. Right? Because God's about America except some of you are not from America. Well, God's about Vietnam, except you're no longer in Vietnam. Well, God's about Mexico. You find out God is not a respecter of any of the nations. He's the Lord over them all. But He chose one nation on earth to express Himself through, in their language, in their speech, in their dress, in their food, in their yearly festivals. I come from Louisiana. We have more festivals than any other state in the Union. 300 and some odd festivals. We have festivals for strawberries. We have festivals for jazz music. We have festivals for crawfish. We have festivals for pumpkins. We have festivals for everything. Most of them did not glorify God. The seven feasts that God gave to Israel taught the world about God. All right, this word, Hillel. Look at Psalm 22:22. Isn't that nice when they do that? 22:22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Declaring his name to the brothers. Have you ever heard the idea, stand up, testify? Well, why stand up? Why would you need to stand up to testify? If one of you begins speaking from the audience, why do I tell you to stand? So somebody can see you and hear you. They know who's speaking. It's not some strange voice. The idea behind Hillel in, in Hebrew is that you stand and stretch towards God with your body, showing Him, I am reaching for you. I want to be touched by you and I want to embrace you. How does a child show you that they want to be in your arms? When you write this word in Hebrew, that's exactly what it looks like. How about this one? I went to Israel the first time in whatever Judah was born, 97. And actually, yeah, no, it's 98 because he was almost walking. And I found these symbols everywhere. It was the Hebrew word chai. 
sounds like you've got uh, milk in your throat. It's not, hi, how are you? It's C-H-A-I, chai. It means life, right? This is the Hebrew word for life. Some of you who uh, spent time on college campuses, they called it chi alpha. That word is chi. And uh, life begins with Jesus, chi alpha. Interesting. The word for life in Hebrew can be seen in Job 38, 39. You don't have to say that. I don't want to bore you. It speaks about the lion being hungry. So how about that life? Being hungry. In the ancient world, to have an empty stomach was to be near death. To have a full stomach was to experience life. Life was going to continue. So when a Hebrew wants to say that you will have life, the very word life means a full stomach. So, well, how do you know whether he's talking about you need to eat or life? What he's saying is that your life force is growing before God as you have a full stomach. You think about that in light of Jesus' phrase in John. I have come that you may have life. And what's that next phrase? Life to the full. What a weird statement in English. Have you ever walked up to somebody and said, Hi, Gabe, how are you? Well, I've come here so that you may have life and life to the full. We would say to the fullest, the most abundant life, some translations have said. The reason it says to the full is because in Greek they didn't know how to make that transition from Hebrew. What they're saying is, I'm not just coming to life, but the maximum amount of me that you can be filled with. Think about the Beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be... That means they will have life. All of this has to do with Hebrews embracing God for something, expecting to reach for Him and receive something from Him and experience from it, not simply sit back and be entertained. The only thing worse than writing your 14 points that you are about God is expecting me to tell you about them in a new and exciting way each week. No wonder pastors get burned out. How many times can I tell you the same joke before it's not funny anymore? And what happens... What happens when I get so bold that I'm going to shed the denominational title for a Sunday? Say, well, I know we are blah, 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 blah. But this morning I'd like to talk to you about this. Well, then the silver hair crowd in the back meets with me after the service. They tell me they're going to hold a vote of no confidence. I was in a uh, church first something or another. can't ever remember the last part of that. And they threw the pastor out. I was nine years old. You know why they threw him out? They thought that he was changing the church too much. Looked like a Roman museum to me. I thought it was a great place to sleep. And when they threw the pastor out and the church began to shrink and the new church out the old one, still nobody noticed. We're Ichabod and the glory moved. And this happened many times to many churches in my hometown. They gave the left foot of fellowship to somebody that wanted to go outside the box that they had put God in, and so the denomination simply threw them out. They're the largest churches in the United States today. Size is certainly not everything, but at some point, if you're a church of 900, and you throw out a pastor because he's trying to teach you a concept you've not previously covenanted to agree upon, and your church shrinks to 300 and his goes to 45, 50,000. 
you, you might wonder whether or not you made a mistake somewhere, wouldn't you? If you started with the best laid business plans, the financing from your local bank, the approval of all of the businessmen, and a, a pristine organizational structure, and they start in a feed store, and yet the glory of God rests in the feed store and doesn't on your stained glass, at some point, don't you think we would turn and look and say, maybe God wants to be embraced rather than just thought about? Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's what happened to me. We'll show you another one, and then we're going to string them all together. Go to uh, Psalm 51. There. That's our first there today. There we go. Psalm 51. How many of you are familiar with Psalm 51 as soon as we start? Look at the 10th verse. I mean, how about this? We sing it all the time. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart. What an interesting phrase. This word create is bara in Hebrew. One of the neat things about bara is it means to make from absolutely nothing. Do you think that David had a heart before he said this? But what David is expressing, he could have used a different Hebrew word, yesar. It would have said, remold my heart. It would have said, take from what is there and recondition it. Actually, both words are used in the creation account, but that's another teaching. He says, bara my heart. You know what he's actually admitting before God? He's saying, mighty God, there is nothing of worth in here. I need you to start again. I need you to take from nothing and make something in me. Now, you know what's really interesting? Bara doesn't just mean to create. You know what else it means? To completely and thoroughly fill. So the way in which God created the heavens and the earth was He completely Filled them where there was nothing before. Look at the ocean. Did He fill it? My God, what glorious things. Look at the heavens. Did He fill them? Have you ever looked up on a night without clouds? My goodness, how beautiful. You ever see an astronomy book where you can see the purple gases in space? How beautiful. David is saying, Lord, there's nothing here that you can work with, but fill my heart with You. Something pure. What do the Beatitudes say about the pure? They will see God. How about that? You find out that these concepts build on each other. Maybe two of the most important. You ever hear a southern preacher doesn't say amen? He says, amen? I went to the store the other day and the girl was having an abortion, amen? Wait, what are we amening? It's become a filler in our speech. You know, it's just become a, a way to pause. And I appreciate it rather than that other style that you can hear the deep breath. And, uh, I went to, and, uh, it kills me. Especially on the radio, I can't handle it. One of the best teachers in the world was a guy in Zachary, Louisiana, but I could not listen to it. Once I got tuned into that, it was over. Uh, send me the transcript. And now I, now I speak before people all of the time, and I realize my mannerisms may may not be pleasing to you. The good news is, it's better than the messenger Balaam got. Now, uh-oh, either y'all don't know the story or it's debatable. John Hagee told that story. He said, you know, 
I never realized today. <laughs> I don't know if I can say it like he did. She said, I never realized till today. It really is true. God can use any old donkey. He didn't know whether she was talking about the story of Balaam or him because that's what he'd been teaching on. Amen means to believe in Hebrew. But it's also the word for supporting something. If you, There's a scripture in Isaiah in the 20s. It says, I drove you like a spike into a tent. It speaks of something supporting something else. When we say believe, we mean that we acknowledge that it's true. When a Hebrew says amen, what he is saying is, I believe it's true to the point where I will support it with my actions. Uh, a kickstand should, could say, you know, I believe that the bike should stand upright. But if it does not support the bike, it's not a kickstand. This is the idea behind the Hebrew amen. But my favorite is the Hebrew word for faith, and it is immuna. We'll see our best example of this in the book of James, but I want to read it to you. Immuna takes the idea of belief or support and the idea of faith, which can be translated trust, and combines them. For a Hebrew to express the word immuna, I'm reading from someone else's word, he is a strong, visible, steady action that shows support for God's work and God's kingdom. How many people say that they have faith, but there's no strong, steady, visible action showing the support for God's work in God's kingdom? How many people do you know that say that they're a Republican or a Democrat, but have never voted? Is it really possible to be such? You know? Can you be a farmer and have never farmed? Can you be a football player and have never put on football pads? Can you really have faith if there is no visible support for God's work and God's kingdom in your life? Your actions don't show it? A tree is known by its fruit. I tell you what. In faith, this plastic ficus over here is now an apple tree. In faith, it's an apple tree. Does that make that thing an apple tree? No, it makes me deluded. And I can be sincerely deluded you know the best example of sincerely deluded I've ever seen? I was at a church function where somebody came barreling towards a door. They sincerely believed that the sliding glass door was open because the glass was very clean. But they were sincerely deluded because they slammed right into it and almost broke their nose. Their belief was sincere enough, but it was not right. You can, with all your heart, believe, I'm okay, you're okay, it's all good, sit through one more sermon. But if your actions don't, in a visible way, show that you're participating with the divine, you might be sincerely deluded. Sincere enough, but deluded nevertheless. I think about that every time I see the ridiculous Albertsons outfits of those guys riding on bicycles with their other testament of Jesus Christ. You can believe it all that you want to believe it, but if there is no archaeological evidence that supports it, if no race mentioned in it has ever existed, if it mentions animals that have never been on the North American continent as fact, and panes of glass during a time period there was no blown glass in the North America, then you can be sincere enough, but you're most certainly deluded. If you have a, a, a New World translation of the Bible that can be shown to be false by every scholar that's ever looked at it, 
The Christians took the man to court who created it and, and he was proven a fraud. He predicted Jesus' return in 1914, 1919, and 1921, 1923, and Jesus didn't return. You can believe that it's right, but you're sincerely deluded. Do you know how you know that you are not sincerely deluded? You're just sincere? Do you know how you would know that? When your whole life's actions show an interaction between you and the divine by way of your faith in Jesus. See, it's wonderful that I believe that this book is real, but what makes it real is when I do what it says, and what it says happens, happens. I'm experiencing God. It's not God in a vacuum. When I worshipped Him today, you didn't have to feel it. I did. You understand what I'm saying? We can argue about what an apple tastes like, but if you've never taken a bite of an apple, what are we really arguing about? We're arguing about what you think an apple tastes like while I'm eating one. I went and asked my pastor, what about the spiritual gifts? Because I had begun reading the Bible. Oh, don't do that. The world's largest, I use this word loosely, church in Italy, the Bible was illegal in any language other than Latin until 1869. And it was referred to in the native tongue as the pest. But I'm sure they were the church. Somebody who thinks God's word is a pest? Mm. How about that? At some point, saints, we've got to get real. We have to lay aside facade. We have to admit, not everything in my life is right. I'm a pastor and not everything in my life is right. I freely invite you into it to see. It makes me better every day. Every time somebody looks at me and says something that had never occurred to me, I go, wow, thank you, Jesus. Actually, the phrase we've learned is, bless you, O Lord. But... This gives us a chance to learn and grow. You know why fellowship becomes so important? Because you don't know everything you need to know. You don't have everything that you need to have. And you have some things that the person sitting on your left and right needs. I want you to look to your left for a moment. Now look to your right. Statistics say that one in three people is pretty. So if they're both ugly, then that's good for you. See, you have something they need. I'm sorry, that was wrong kind of like the lady that was standing in front of a mirror and she's depressed. She said, look at this. I've got these bags under my eyes. Her husband's standing there silently, wisely. She goes, and my ears are so droopy these days. And my God, look at my thighs, honey. She says, can't you say anything that would encourage me? I don't want you to lie to me. Tell me something that would encourage me. Said, you have a heck of an eyesight, baby. Aww. Yeah. Probably not the wisest choice, huh, Matthew? i got one more for you, and then I want to string these together in a way that will show you what to do. Fair enough? You thought that NASA stood for the National Aeronautic Space and Association. It, it does. It's an acronym in English. But it's actually a Hebrew word. NASA means to forgive. This would be the easiest one that you've ever had to remember. What do you do at, at NASA? You count down to uh, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 to lift off. You know what NASA means in Hebrew? To lift off. To lift off. You know how it's translated in English? To forgive. Isn't that amazing? To forgive. Turn with me to Psalm 25. NASA in Hebrew means to lift off 
which is the way that a Hebrew person would say to forgive. 25, look at the 18th verse. It says, Look upon my affliction and my distress. Take away all of my sins. In the actual original language, what is called a literal or transliteration, this would say, get there again, Look upon my affliction and my distress and lift off all of my sins. This same phrase when translated into Greek and then English is forgive me. When we are saying that the Lord forgave us, in the Hebrew mind what they're saying is He lifted off of you all of your sin. Friends, how can you stare at the ground, clasp your hands, look like you are waiting to get hit with a stick and say that He lifted off of you all of your sin? I had a friend that took a backpack and loaded it down with a couple hundred pounds and then put it preach about casting off the old man. As he began to preach, it bent him over. It hurt. You could see he's struggling under it the whole time. What Jesus does is He comes and He removes that from you. It's not that you have a life free from struggle. It's that you have a life free from guilt and condemnation because you now have an advocate and someone who removes from you your sin. What an awesome thing. So if you're describing a relationship with God, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to get to the end here. My wife's been encouraging me. She said, Eric, not that I don't like your preaching. She's not allowed to say she she doesn't like it. I mean, she's married to me. What would she do? She said, but sometimes you open so many subjects. We can see that you get it, but um, you might just choose one on a Sunday. So I've done my best to do that today. I hope it's not boring. Even if it were boring, even if it were boring, let's remember something. This is the Word of the living God. And whether or not you are entertained is irrelevant. What you do when you leave here is what is relevant. As a community of believers, as a body of believers right now, my sole goal is to get you to perform outside this church the very things that we practice inside the church. That ought not be a novel concept. (laughs) And yet it seems like an impossible task because of our preconditioning. We think we're okay when we have heard a message. Never mind the fact that James says it's doers of the Word that are blessed. And by the way, on the topic of Immuna, James is a Hebrew man. His words are recorded in Greek. If he were speaking in Hebrew... He would have said, I will show you my immuna, my faith, by what I do. Where is that in our preaching? We say, do what I say and not what I do. We even tell our children that. I can show you in the book of John that Jesus absolutely said, do not believe me unless you see me do what my Father does. If that were your Christian witness, how big of a witness? would it be? If when you met somebody at work, you said, Mandy, don't you dare believe a word I say unless you see me acting just like God. That'd be a problem, wouldn't it? I'm not suggesting that it's possible to hit perfection, but you were told to aim for it. And as you aim for it, what others will see is not perfection. They will see a man whose actions 
Every part of his being is striving for God and God's blessing is on his life. You say, but what about this area? What about that area? That is grace and all of its truth. When a man is striving for God so God credits him with the victory that he does not actually possess. You know what is not grace and all of its truth? Just claiming it and not living it. That's grace that's been changed into a license for immorality. And I didn't make that up. Jude did. And Jude said that it's men who do not have the Spirit, who follow mere natural instincts that divide you and change God's grace into a license for immorality. And yet you can find whole churches full of it everywhere. And none of us think it's strange. Paul tells Timothy that there are churches that have a form of godliness but deny its power. And you can see them everywhere, but nobody has the courage to say so. It makes you wonder whether what we call Christianity even begins to resemble the real thing. I pray that as we do this, you find the courage to be a real Christian. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you really have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, then we will praise God. We will praise by standing and with our whole body stretching forth towards God, trying to express to Him our love for Him. That's Hallel. The next one is Kai. It's in John 10.10. He says, I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. If you really want life, to devour everything that is Jesus. That's what he said in John 6. So that you have a full spiritual stomach and are able to go and do God's will and God's work. The abundant life is to be completely full with Jesus. Your appetite in Him completely satisfied. When is the last time you read the Word and you thought you read enough? When's the last time you prayed and you thought, okay, I've prayed enough? You don't have to walk around with a guilty conscience about those things. You set aside some time. You spend some time, sneak away with Him like a date, and you will find an abundant life. Maybe instead of sneaking home to watch Sinfield or The Simpsons. I actually love both those shows. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Hell's Box Office, Skin the Max, something, whatever it is that you're running home to watch. Maybe if you set those aside for just a moment and said, Jesus, tonight, instead of that two-hour finale, I just want to spend some time with you you would find out exactly what it is to have a full appetite of Jesus. That's what he calls an abundant life, or life to the full, a full stomach. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, all things have become new. If he were saying this in Hebrew, he would have had to use the word bara. It means that there is as if there was nothing there before He has now filled you with newness so that you are a new creation. This is the way in which we embrace Him. We start off by praising Him. Then we get full of Him, which is life. And we slowly become a new creation, which is bara. Then we move to James 3.13. got two more scriptures for you, and I am going to ask you to turn to these. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, 
by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. Good deeds done in humility. His good life that come from wisdom. I'm tired of hearing what people believe. I want to see what they believe in their actions. You know how I know that Jesus is the most important thing in your life? When He's so important that you want to share Him with somebody else so that they'll have the life you have. You know how I know He really is Lord over your finances? It's when you do something for Him with your finances and you quit whining when you don't have because you believe He's going to provide for you. I never forget, I was praying in a men's prayer meeting and one of my brothers rebuked me. I said, Lord, I know that You're going to provide, but... He said, if you know He's going to provide, what are you whining for? Truth is, I wanted to believe He was going to provide and I didn't. I was just saying it. Praise God for a brother that will call you out when you... uh, I can't think of a good... Stumble. Yeah. I was going to say you're full of baloney. We deceive ourselves with our own words. Look into the mirror of God's Word and your actions will tell the true story of your life. I love you, sweetheart, more than anything else on earth, but I will spend every waking hour playing a computer game. I love you, sweetheart, more than anything else on earth, but don't touch my bass boat. No woman would believe that, at least not for very long. How about God? You really think so? You haul back and pop your wife right in the face and say, I'm sorry. Then you give her a left. Oh, baby, I'm so sorry. And then a right. How long is she going to stand there and believe you? When we say, we love you, Lord, we have no gods beside you, and they put everything in your life before Him, do you really think He is not jealous and doesn't burn intensely? I just want my actions to show what God has done in it. Turn to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Lest I make this sound too burdensome, I want to finish with this scripture. I'm going to let you out of here about three minutes early, but I don't want you to expect that. I was in a sales job one time, and I was flattering a man. It took me a long time to learn how to negotiate the sales world in a godly way. And I swear he didn't do it consciously, but it was almost as if he said, no, don't do that, really. Don't do that. There are times in which our words are merely the window dressing of what we would like other people to see. But there is no way to disguise the fruit of your life. In Jesus' given time, will do whatever it takes to make you produce good fruit in the kingdom. Husbands, wives, your first responsibility is in your own home. Nobody is fit for ministry if they're not fit to run their own household. Your first sheep that you ever pastor, and every family has this responsibility, are your own children. So when you see a pastor and his kids are hellions, well, let's talk about something else. In uh, Matthew 11, the 28th verse, Come to me, All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
What a description of what it means to be forgiven. He will take from you burden and those things which are wearying you and tearing you down. This is NASA. It's when He forgives you and He lifts off of you your burdens. The question is not what is the nature of God like or what do you believe God can do. The question is what do you believe that you can do for God? Everybody in here would probably agree that God can do anything. The question is what about you? Will you do anything? Not can God do anything, but will you do anything? So I just don't know what to do. I bet if you ask the king of the universe for an opportunity in some way to serve him this week, I bet he would show you. There's got to be somebody's grass you can cut, somebody's groceries you could buy, somebody that you could spend a few minutes talking with that maybe just needed to hear it that week. This world's broken, and it's our job to repair it, and we do it in the name of the King. Y'all stand to your feet. You're building a church when you start in a living room and tell your wife to invite the neighbors on the right and you'll invite the neighbors on your left. And the only person that has shown up at your church services is a young lady that God called to help you start a church. It's easy to get discouraged. Then when you run into other pastors that run their church like a CEO run a business and say what you need is the right plan. You need to vision cast, son. If you'll come under our wing, we will show you how to bring people in. But you examine their catch and you don't think any are worth eating. It can be a discouraging time. Finney told the men who wanted to ordain him, I've examined your lives. And if you are the best that these seminaries have to offer, I think you fall woefully short of my ideal of what a Christian is. And he refused the ordination. I'm challenging you, church, to do something today. Not become like Eric Stevens or Matthew Pirro. Not to start a new denomination called Life Changing Ministries. It's to hunger and thirst with all of your heart for all that God is. To accept no substitutes and then act like He's real in your daily life. And you know what? He'll show up. You'll see miracles that you wouldn't have seen before starting with changes in your own life. Join the hands of the people around you. We'll pray. I want to tell you the truth. We don't have an altar call set up. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we don't. I think most of you got what you needed while we were preaching, and you'll go home and you'll meditate on it. There are a few of you that I see faith in your eyes, and I feel like you need to take an additional step. I'm not going to sit up here and whine and beg people to come to the front. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to tell you is if you feel God pricking your heart and you want to pray with somebody, I'm not going to go put a notch on a wall somewhere and say we got one more for our denomination. I'm going to pray with you and set you free to do what God's told you to do. I think there's a few of you in here that fall into that category. But we're going to pray, dismiss, people stand around and talk. I'll sit up here for a while. If you want to pray with me, come pray with me. Keith Green used to give altar calls and said, if you really think you're saved, come see me tomorrow. After you've counted the cost, so you ought not need music. We don't have to play song or hymn 142 over and over and over to get you to walk down an aisle. Either you want to love Jesus or you don't. 
And truthfully, if you don't, you're wasting everybody's time. You all pray? All right.